morning, Charlie. Hey, lovely. How are you doing? I'm very well. How are you doing? I'm so good. I've been in the ocean this weekend and I'm so happy. <gasps> I am so happy for you too. And I also got in the ocean this week. <laughs> Mutual ocean times, I love it. Oh my gosh, I mean, after nearly a year of lockdowns, that feeling of getting back in the sea, even if it's the cold, frosty English sea, mm. there's just nothing like it. No, it really is nothing like it. And I mean, the UK has its own magic, so you've just got to take what you can get, right? <laughs> exactly. But talking about frosty seas, today we are actually going to the other end of the spectrum and we are going to be talking about ocean acidification and ocean warming, aka climate change. Mm, yeah, it's a hot topic, to say the least. <laughs> <laughs> pun intended? Yeah, pun always intended. <laughs> Welcome to the Women in Ocean Science podcast, hosted by me, Charlie Young, and me, Mad St. Clair. We're two marine biologists on a quest to elevate the voices of our fellow female scientists. Each week, we'll be diving into a new and exciting piece of research authored by a leading woman in marine science. From fisheries biologists to chemical oceanographers to PhD students and researching mamas. We'll be hearing from the pioneering female researchers of today to put a new spin on scientific publications. And smash down some gender stereotypes in the process. So tune in every Monday for a podcast that champions the research of lady scientists and shines a positive light on the work being done to protect the ocean. How are sharks affected by climate change? And will they be able to adapt to a changing ocean? Well, today on the Women in Ocean Science podcast, we'll be speaking to a leading female scientist at the forefront of shark climate change research to find out. Dr Jodie Rummer is an Associate Professor and Principal Research Fellow at the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University. Jodie's background is in marine biology and comparative physiology, and today we'll be chatting through one of her papers published last year on the responses of a coral reef shark acutely exposed to ocean acidification conditions. Over the course of her career, Jodie has researched fish buoyancy, exercise, and is a leading authority on the evolution of oxygen transport and how performance is maintained during stress. Today, Jodie's team combines physiology, ecology and evolution to address issues important to conservation, such as the effect of climate change and other anthropogenic problems on coral reef fishes, sharks and rays, and assesses their potential for adaptation. Jodie has published 97 peer-reviewed journal articles and book chapters and another 22 conference proceedings and editorials. And she has also presented her work at more than 100 professional conferences and public events. We are thrilled to have Jodie here today and, of course, to chat about sharks. Jodie, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thank you for being here. So where are you in the world at the moment? What's going on for you? I am based in Townsville in Australia. It's on the northeastern coast of Australia, right in the middle of the Great Barrier Reef. So perfect place to be if you're interested in all things coral reef and ocean science. 
Wow. wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's a heck of a lot better than Bristol. <laughs> <laughs> Although we do have blue skies here again today. You know, we end up talking about the weather at the beginning of pretty much every <laughs> podcast. And uh, yeah, here here in London today, we have blue skies. So not quite Townsville, um, but <laughs> still rather pleasant. Um, but today we're actually here to talk about your paper, Jody, Responses of a Coral Reef Shark Acutely Exposed to Ocean Acidification Conditions. Um, I've been following Dr. Jody's research for a long time now, so I'm very excited to discuss this today. But um, Jody, would you like to start off by giving us an abstract-like podcast summary for our listeners of the paper? That is, yeah. Um, no, that's that's great. This paper is is probably the best way to kick off this chat today because this is the the first study that I did that really catalyzed a lot of this research on newborn reef sharks and how they're maybe expected to cope with uh, the doom and gloom of climate change. Um, Mm -hmm. These newborn reef sharks that I've been studying uh, largely in French Polynesia off the coast of Morea, a small island off of Tahiti, uh, as part of the PhysioShark research program, they're small little reef sharks, but they also have to endure some pretty challenging conditions in the shallows that they call nurseries. Um, You know, we think of a nursery as a a safe, hospitable place to to grow up and and learn and and grow. And meanwhile, these newborn reef sharks are are in these nursery-like areas that are shallow. They get extremely warm. It's the dead of summer. They get very low in oxygen. And at night, they also get very high in carbon dioxide, so very similar to some of the conditions we're expecting with ocean acidification uh, across the globe and, and what the oceans might be facing um, in the coming decades. And so it, it really was a, a perfect place and a perfect system in which to study you know, what these organisms already have in terms of coping with these types of challenging conditions and what we might expect for maybe other species of reef sharks or adult reef sharks or, or other sharks around the world, what they might need to face these challenges both now and into the future. So yeah, this, this study really sort of catalyzed that. Um, I'm a physiologist by training and physiology in its most basic definition is just the understanding of, of how biological systems inside the body work. So the the cardiac system, the heart, the respiratory system, how we breathe and how we take up oxygen, um, how our blood transports oxygen throughout the body and delivers it to muscles, how those muscles function. And a lot of these traits um, that we can study as a physiologist are so important for the ecology of, of these organisms that we're interested in. And so I've used that throughout my studies, throughout my research, to target some of these important traits that that could be affected by climate change, could be affected by these stressors in, for example, these sharks' environment, and and what that might mean for them into the future, if they can make changes to those important traits that allow them to breathe oxygen and swim and and become adult sharks um, and and what that might mean for the future. So that's really how this study got started. Um, the PhysioShark Research Program got started in 2013, and this particular project actually started in 2014. And so it kind of goes to show you that it takes a little while to get from 
an idea to funding a whole entire research program to collecting data to analyzing data and then Mm. figuring out what it all means and then communicating what those important findings are to not only to our scientific audience but also to the general public and in this case to the polynesians that really depend on these sharks for healthy ecosystems and for their livelihood and for their culture so that's that's kind of how it all got started and I guess the overall finding is is pretty interesting in that these newborn reef sharks are pretty tough. They are very much a product of, of their environment. They can endure some of these challenging conditions, and that, that's really good news in this case. Um, we don't know if they hold on to this toughness throughout their entire lives, but as newborns, they can tolerate these ocean acidification-like conditions and when we simulate them in in the laboratory and and measure some of these characteristics that could be affected and so that's that's pretty exciting Um, we measured all kinds of things like uh, how much oxygen they're breathing um, all the parameters of their blood how their blood is transporting oxygen how their blood is coping with stress and by and large like i said uh, they appear to be pretty robust to these end of century ocean acidification type conditions and so that's that's promising to us but we knew that we still had a lot of work to do and so that really catalyzed a lot of other studies in terms of not only this particular reef shark the black tip reef shark but also its nearby cousin that's also a newborn in these areas the sickle fin lemon shark and reef sharks in general Uh, not only as newborns, but also as adults. And also taking that focus from not just ocean acidification, but also these other conditions that these sharks are facing in these shallow, challenging habitats, such as warm water and low oxygen and and even human-induced stress that is more, I guess, apparent and obvious, just um, human presence, tourism, accidental fishing and those types of things. So my I guess my first question is 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 jumping on the theme of ocean acidification. For this study specifically and I guess also in the studies that have springboarded off of of this study as well when we talk about these future conditions of ocean acidification um, and these elevated levels that we'll see of, of, of the partial pressure of carbon dioxide at the end of the century. Were you using, um, you know, business as usual scenario projections for that level of elevated CO2? Or um, are we, you know, extrapolating it at the worst case scenario? What, what were the levels that you used in this study and also that you try and use um, as a, a proxy for future levels in, uh, in other studies? No, that's a great question. So how do we get these values? How are we you know, sort of, how do we have that lens into the future, so to speak? And mm. you know, a lot of this information comes from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and all of these other brilliant scientists around the world that are in taking oceanographic data and atmospheric data and really trying to understand if we continue our current day habits as humans, what does that mean for the atmosphere in terms of carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. And then we also know that you know, just the basic chemistry of how the ocean works with carbon dioxide 
and and that's a that's a system we understand very well that a, about a third of that carbon dioxide is being absorbed by the oceans and when it reaches this sort of capacity what does that mean for how much carbon dioxide goes into the ocean and what kind of a pH change that acidification what does that mean for the ocean and so yeah to answer your question we are usually looking at a business as usual scenario like if we humans keep doing what we're doing which maybe we shouldn't <laughs> um, <laughs> these are the projections and we usually use the middle of the century so about 2050 and the end of the century um, so a couple different scenarios that we usually try to target when we're setting up these experiments in the laboratory and, and controlling these conditions that the sharks are exposed to. Yeah, I think that's really important because I think if you just focus on obviously one scenario, then you're only getting an answer to, you know, what happens in one case. And obviously, as much as we'd like to think that we're not going to continue as business as usual, I think it makes for a much stronger kind of argument when you say, hey, look, you know, we've exposed them to the worst case scenario. And then also, you know, a lesser kind of extreme. And you can kind of then present to our policymakers the differences that, you know, curbing our carbon emissions and kind of reducing um, the emissions that we're producing can really have on the environment. And I just want to take it back as well to kind of focus on the black tip reef shark. So you mentioned when you're explaining, um, you know, the idea behind the study and why you went out there and did it, that, you know, these these reef sharks have significant importance both for the reef and then for the people that depend on them. So I'd love to know exactly what is the role that these sharks actually play in these reef environments? Now that's a great question as well. I think that's that's one of the really special parts of working in, in Polynesian islands and in the Pacific and in small island nations is there is such this, this ethereal, cathartic connection with you know, different aspects of wildlife and different aspects of nature to the, the communities and, you know, learning more and more about that over the years I've been working in French Polynesia and, and the role of the shark in terms of culture and also how the shark is seen as its importance to, they, they call it the, the garbage collector, you know, kind of loosely translated <laughs> the garbage collector, like they know, Polynesians know that. that the, the, the sharks are, are taking care of the weak and they're you know, making for strong populations of other fish species and really such a key to the ecosystem. It's, it's so pronounced in the culture in terms of the environmental and ecological role. But what you'll also see, which is so beautiful, is on the art and the, the tattoos and you know, on people's bodies and on the, the mm. tapas, which is the, the thin white paper sort of tapestry that's on the walls as, as artistic renditions. You see the sharks portrayed in so many beautiful ways because it is such a part of the culture. Um, a young gentleman that I speak to every year I'm, I'm there tells me about how they see the shark in the stars as well and how a lot of people think that uh, maybe they're reincarnated as a shark. Wow. They kind of, after they pass away, they go back to the ocean and they become a shark. So there's lots of stories. There's lots of uh, um, 
I guess, myths and, mm. and legends that go along with the shark as well. But the ecological role is, is very clear. I mean, these areas you have um, people that are fishing for their families and doing this all by hand, you know, without massive technology that, you know, we yeah. in our developed countries are used to. And, and they know that, you know, if you don't have healthy sharks in the ecosystem, you don't have any other species that are healthy and you can't feed your family. And, and also, if you don't have healthy sharks, you don't have a healthy reef in that case. And the, the reef structure would be maybe protecting a small island from a cyclone damage and storm damage and erosion and, and that kind of thing as well. So all of this interconnectedness is just so cemented into the culture. It's just really... It's really inspiring, mm. and you know, I learn so much from from the people I work with, um, and I, you know, I hope they learn a little bit from from our research. <laughs> but I probably learn more from them, to be honest. Wow, that's that's really incredible to hear that it has such a cultural um, that sharks have such a cultural place as well as an ecological place um, on the reefs in French Polynesia, um, and I guess. That kind of leads on to my to my next question, which is, you know, as you said, this was one of the the, the first studies to look into um, high trophic level predators like these black tip reef sharks. Um, but but prior to this, there had been lots of studies looking at teleost fish and normal normal bony fish. That is why why have we not studied these higher level you know, um, predators until now in, with their responses to ocean acidification? Um, no, that's, that's a perfect question, really. Um, my team, we started looking at ocean acidification conditions in teleos fishes and the bony fishes as well. I mean, that's, you know, a lot of the work that I did for my PhD from a very mechanistic level, not necessarily thinking about it in terms of ocean acidification, but then you know, having finished my PhD, bringing that into that ecological and climate change relevance. But um, I guess a lot of a lot of the work that I did to start was mainly out of a mechanistic physiology curiosity, like how are these fish coping mm. with these high carbon dioxide conditions? What are the mechanisms they're using, and and why are they so special? How are they able to correct? that pH disturbance in their blood that happens when they're exposed to these conditions, how are they able to correct that so quickly? And there are a lot of differences between a bony fish and a cartilaginous fish like a shark. And so that was the next logical step. Um, mm. you know, cartilaginous fishes are doing it a little bit differently from a mechanistic perspective. Um, but then you have a little bit of a logistical di difficulty working with sharks versus teleos fishes. You know, some of the teleos <laughs> fishes we work with are, you know, super easy to catch and you can get lots of them and, you know, we have multiple generations in the labs. You can look at that aspect. Sharks, not so much. I mean, <sighs> first and foremost, we all know, you know, they can be quite big. They can be quite bitey and <laughs> not, not super easy to catch. So. You know, you have you have a few of those challenges to start off with, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I guess from you know a controlled laboratory experiment perspective, that does add for a challenge. And we need those controlled laboratory experiments in order to you know weed out all the other factors that can be influencing how they are responding to this one condition that we're super interested in. Because then we can start adding on multiple layers to that. Mm. But we have to get to the bare basics first. 
So that's been the, the biggest challenge. And that's, that's why my team actually started off working with the epaulette shark. Do you know what? I was going to ask that because yeah, I was going to say it because they obviously, I know you were just speaking about the functional role of the, the black tips in, in the ecosystem, but obviously the epaulettes are pretty much functionally redundant. So they don't really have much. <laughs> hey, <laughs> they're to important be... too. We <laughs> <I> love them. <laughs> but, um, you, you know, so I, I did wonder if that's why, because I, I saw that you'd referenced that you'd worked with um, these little, you know, reef dwelling carpet sharks and epaulette sharks um in the paper as well and I thought oh I wonder if that's because they are you know easy elasma branks to work with absolutely <laughs> <laughs> if you consider like ethics and you know workplace health and safety and logistics <laughs> yes absolutely <laughs> you know we, we only have so much time to do this research um you know we're, we're very lucky here on the great barrier reef that the epaulette shark you know this carpet shark species is found up and down the great barrier reef you know we've got 2300 kilometers of of continuous reef where this particular species is found. And so um, not only is it abundant, but, um, you know, the hardest part about the shark is that it likes to hide and it's very squirmy. You know, so it's not a big bitey shark. It's not elusive in terms of swimming really fast and, and migrating or anything like that. And so in that aspect, it's, it's quite an easy species to work with. It's also a very common species in the aquarium industry because they are so interesting um, and mm. small, you know, maybe a meter long. And they don't take not a lot of biomass. They don't take a whole lot of space. And the other really cool thing about the epaulette shark from a researcher's perspective is that they develop in an egg. And so we can look at these eggs for three months at a time and hold those eggs under, in this case, ocean acidification conditions and see exactly what they're doing in terms of responding to this challenge. So from a scientist's perspective, they are fantastic as our lab rats, so to speak. They are really just a great species to work with. Very cute lab rats. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, carpet shark kind of just, I mean, the clue's in the name for just how kind of maybe calm they are in comparison to um, black tip reef sharks. The name kind of just alludes that they just sit around all day and... Um, very much take a relaxed approach to life. Um, Absolutely. But... They just like to hide. That's that's yeah. their thing. They, they hide <laughs> and they, they cuddle with their friends. So, <laughs> See, I just love them. I don't care. They're functionally redundant. Like They are amazing. Um, so I think this segues, you know, really nicely to kind of focus in on exactly what your methodology was for this paper. I mean, you've kind of there's been little snippets that have come out where you've you've explained that this wasn't in situ. You actually did a lab experiment. So you had the fun task of going out and collecting some newborn black tip, uh, black tip roof sharks. Um, and you did that with gill nets. And that alone sounds like quite, quite a logistical challenge. And then you had them in a lab for 70, well, more than 72 hours. But the exposure experiment was 72 hours long. And that is how you expose them to these, you know, or elevated partial pressures. Can you explain to us um, what the parameters were and what was the data that you were collecting to kind of truly understand exactly how these sharks were being impacted by these higher levels of partial pressures? Yeah, so if I can take you on this little journey with me, we've been um, 
monitoring these black tip reef sharks and other small newborn reef sharks around this particular island of Moria, about 10 different sites around this island. Now, this is a small island. It's, if you were to ride your bicycle around the circumference of the island, it's about 62 kilometers. So, um, you know, every six or seven kilometers, we've got another nursery-like habitat. So it's, we could drive a pickup truck right to the coastline and set up our gillnets at dusk every evening between the months of October to February, we could pretty much guarantee that we will get at least one, if not sometimes 10, newborn reef sharks wow. in these areas. Yeah, so it's it's a great system that we've been sampling and working with for about 10 years now. And so when we do the sampling, we're taking all kinds of measurements because we're really interested in how these newborns are growing and these nursery-like habitats as well. And then we'll bring these newborn sharks back to the laboratory, which is in one of the bays in the northern part of the island. It's a, it's a French-run laboratory. It's a laboratory I've been working with, uh, with a associate plan for the entire time I've been working on this project. It's a great collaboration. I'm very lucky to be able to work with them. And we've got these large tanks that we... We've improved upon over the years, uh, set up to hold these sharks. Uh, we found out that the sharks like to jump, so they're covered <laughs> completely. No uh, you know, so air jaws is Sorry. real, folks. It's real. <laughs> air jaws, gosh. Don't let this get out. That'll be in the that'll be in the Daily Mail tomorrow. <laughs> right. <laughs> The learning curve that you have to, you know, overcome as a as a scientist working in a new uh, habitat is is always interesting. So you know, this this was the first project where I kind of overcame all of those new challenges and learned how to catch sharks, learned how to bring them back to the laboratory, and learned how to expose them to these conditions as well. So you know, essentially, I've got uh, a carbon dioxide gas cylinder and a regulator and solenoid valves and a computer system that's I've set up to tell the system to open and close the solenoid valve to let more or less carbon dioxide gas into the system, into the water, uh, so that it stays at a certain level. And, and these sort of mid-century and end-of-century conditions that I like to simulate for these ocean acidification projects. And that's exactly what I'm doing in the laboratory. And during that time, you know, of course, you're monitoring everything that you can possibly monitor and measuring everything that you can possibly measure to see how the sharks are responding. So circling back to uh, the physiology component, that's really my background. I am extremely passionate about the inner workings of their respiratory system and how they move and how they perform. And mm. that's key to their to their survival that's key to their success when they are out in their natural habitat so i'm monitoring things like how much oxygen they're breathing over a certain period of time because that's a proxy for their metabolism how much energy they need and if that goes up under certain circumstances as a predator that means they need more energy that means they need more food in their ecosystem in their habitat so that can tell us a lot about how much of an upset to the balance of their ecosystem a change like that could make in their habitat. So really key traits 
in terms of estimating metabolism or metabolic costs, so to speak. Those are the types of things they're measuring. And we know a lot of those changes can also be seen in the blood. The blood can tell us a lot about what these animals are doing to cope with stress, how they're coping with a, a metabolic challenge. And so I'm monitoring um, some of these parameters in their blood as well. So we take blood samples periodically. And it's not unlike what we do with humans. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I, call, I call my little animals athletes. They're my aquatic <laughs> athletes. And a lot of the same measurements we would make with human athletes, we're making with these aquatic athletes as well. Because a lot of the, the metrics, a lot of the traits that I'm really interested in, we can measure in a very similar way that we would with human athletes. Uh, so as a human athlete, I monitor my own VO2 max, and that's a, a proxy for how much oxygen my body can take up when I'm maximally, maximally performing, um, you know, running a race. Uh, doing a really intense gym workout, et cetera. And we do that similarly with these sharks as well. Um, some of the same blood parameters that we would monitor in a human athlete to see how much oxygen their hemoglobin, their protein in their blood is taking up. We would do that with these sharks, how much lactate they're producing, how much glucose they're producing. So a lot of the same metrics we would measure in these sharks as well. And it's telling us a lot about how they're coping with the challenge in their environment, but in this case, the, the controlled laboratory conditions that we're simulating. Gosh, it's absolutely incredible that you um, relate, you, you know, shark physiology to the way that athletes track their performance as well. Um, and I'd love to know, because when you look at things like the epaulette sharks, which, which we mentioned earlier on, who are kind of physiologically designed to withstand completely different environmental conditions to, let's say, the black tip reef shark, because the black tip reef shark, even though they're in these pools of fluctuating temperatures, and I actually have a different question about this a bit later on as well, um, but a lot of epaulette sharks are subjected to quite anoxic conditions when the reef goes out. They're also, some of them referred to as the walking shark, because they have this ability to literally kind of walk over the reef so I guess my next question is, when we look at these physiologies and these parameters that you've just studied, how, how do we see them differing then between different species? What kind of different variations can we see um, to you know, adapt to these different environments that, or these different conditions that they're subjected to? Well, so far, we really have been focusing on not only species, but life stages that mm. probably be a little bit more robust to these conditions because, yeah, I mean, as much as we try to as scientists, we can't take the animal out of its habitat. Uh, this, this organism has this, this relationship with its environment that is, is so interconnected. So their, their physiology is it's almost built to respond to the changes in their environment. So as newborn black tip reef sharks, in order for them to survive in these challenging nurseries, they have to be robust to these conditions. And, you know, that's something we can confirm with these experiments. And the same goes for the epaulette shark, but across all life stages, I would say, with the epaulette sharks in that as an egg, they can't get up and go anywhere. They're stuck at the little reef or underneath the crevice wherever the mother laid the egg for upwards of three months while that egg embryo develops. 
and they have to endure those conditions during that entire time. They cannot move out of those conditions if they're too challenging. So they have to be robust to those conditions. And then we know as hatchlings, they're, you know, they would look like a little snack to anything else when you buy. So they have to be able to hide (laughs) if they can't endure the challenging conditions in those tight little nooks and crannies of the reef, the, the hiding spots. And, you know, that's where at night coral is not using photosynthesis anymore. Coral is using respiration like all the other air breathing or, you know, oxygen breathing organisms. And so therefore coral is breathing up oxygen, decreasing the oxygen in those areas. And the coral is releasing carbon dioxide and increasing the carbon dioxide and the more dense of a coral reef habitat you have at night the more challenging those conditions are going to be so those little sharks that are hiding in those nooks and crannies of the reef have got to also be able to tolerate those conditions when they get the most challenging because that's their survival So yes, it's going to get very, very low in oxygen if you're in a very densely packed, beautiful, but crazy, (laughs) challenging coral reef habitat, it's going to get very low in oxygen. It's going to get very high in carbon dioxide. The pH will drop. And we know in the summertime, the temperatures are going to get very warm as well. And so we have have some evidence that they'll get up and walk away if they don't like it, you know, just as as us humans... Don't like a situation, just walk away. Well, the sharks, these epaulette sharks, they they can do that if it gets a little too challenging. And you know, that's that's a whole other topic that some of my more morphology and biomechanics colleagues can comment to, but mm. their pectoral fins are actually modified to help them walk. They can walk from reef flat to reef flat. So you know, whether the challenging conditions are just too much or whether they've just had enough and they need a change of scenery, they will walk away. <laughs> I love that. It's absolutely amazing. They uh, they just they just seem like the best sharks. I'm sorry, I'm completely sold. Um, sadly, I've never met one, but hopefully one day. Um, but I kind of want to want to focus back in again on the kind of results. I know that you explained at the beginning of this that, you know, you found that these sharks are really quite tough to the you know conditions that you expose them to. But I want to speak specifically about kind of, yeah, the specifics of the results that you found. So you had um, or you saw that the newborn black tip reef sharks exhibited a hematological response. So they were exposed to these end of century PCO2 levels and you found that they had significantly higher HCT. So that's hemoglobin concentration, if I'm correct. And you found that this isn't generally observed amongst other sharks exposed to OA. Um, And then you also found other things, such as they had higher blood lactate concentrations upon exposure. And so, you know, your experiment was 72 hours long and you know as you've explained these environments are always undergoing really extreme changes on a daily basis um and so they're already as you say probably incredibly robust to quite extreme conditions 
And so, you know, moving forward, we know that the world is going to change and your experiment was 72 hours. Like what does, you know, what what, it, what do you feel like from the study? Do you think that they're going to be able to kind of deal with the ongoing um, rising levels and the pressures that that might put them under, considering that they're already quite robust to daily fluctuations? Or do you think that, you know, like many other species, it's just the rate of change is just going to be too much. So yeah, a lot of questions in one there. But if you could speak mm-hmm. yeah, a little bit more about the specific results and kind of what you think this means um, for the future of this species, that would be great. No, I think that you've definitely hit on a lot of really good points there. The, the most alarming part of this whole situation is the rate of change. Um, you know, we're looking at it since about the Industrial Revolution or so, and the, the relationship between the, the greenhouse gases that we've been putting up into the atmosphere and what that's been doing to the ocean is very clear. And there's a very clear signature that shows us that that pretty much started to accelerate around the Industrial Revolution, you know, when we had this massive increase in technology. Uh, and that's when we noticed over that period of time that the the pH of the oceans has dropped by about 0.1 units. You might think, okay, 0.1 units, that's not that big of a deal, but we have to remember that the pH scale is logarithmic. And so it's not just 0.1, it actually means that the oceans are about 28% more acidic than they were since the mid 1800s. So it's, it's not just a 0.1 change, it's a 28% <laughs> change yeah. because of that scale with, um, with pH. So mm. the rate of change since the Industrial Revolution, since the mid 1800s or so, is what's really alarming to us. So, okay, we can't do experiments on that time scale. And even with sharks, it's really hard for us to do generational time scales because we know that sharks are what we call case-selected ecologically. So they have slow generation times, meaning that they take a really long time to mature sexually. When they do sexually mature, they don't produce a lot of young. They don't reproduce often. And the young that they do reproduce, or the young that they do produce, rather, they grow, they grow very slowly, and then they take a long time to reach sexual maturity. So we don't really have those long periods of time in which to, to you know, take the lens to this problem. But let's zoom in a little bit closer. We do know that in this particular case, the reefs and these shallow, highly productive with lots of algae habitats are fluctuating on a daily basis. And you know, my team has done a lot of experiments to really understand what those fluctuations look like in terms of CO2 rise and fall. And in some areas, we might be seeing CO2 get up to the levels we're expecting for the mid or even end of century. So just that change on a daily basis because of how productive these habitats are. So that's why a 72-hour challenge can actually tell us a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, what are they already doing? Like, what are the changes they're already making on a daily basis um, to cope with these fluctuations in their natural habitat? And that could tell us a little bit more about what they might need to be doing on a bigger scale. So we zoom in and then we zoom back out. 
And that's, that's how we approach this situation because we can't look over many, 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 many generations of sharks. I don't have that in my lifetime <laughs> um, <laughs> as a scientist. <laughs> uh, my students don't want to stay a lot around that long. <laughs> it's just not, <laughs> it's not feasible from a, a time scale. Um, mm. So we do have to, to think about that on a, a different, you know, just from a different set of eyes, I guess. Um, I guess the next aspect of that is to do with the traits that we look at. So in this particular project, uh, you were saying, you know, the, the blood parameters that we looked at and mm. the changes that we were able to see with some of those blood parameters. And what led us to do that is because we were looking at some of these more whole body metabolic responses that I discussed a little bit earlier. So we'll monitor the shark's oxygen uptake rates or their breathing rates under just resting conditions, you know, just like you and I would be sitting on the, the lounge, not doing anything. We're not digesting a meal. We're not stressed out about anything. We're just chilling out. How much oxygen do we need to just be alive? Mm. We'll do that under current day conditions and we'll do that under ocean acidification conditions. Mm -hmm. And we found no difference. Okay. So just just the wow. energy, just the oxygen they need just to be alive, just to maintain daily bodily processes. No change between current day conditions and end of century ocean acidification conditions. Like, okay, that's interesting. Mm. Well, what about if we exercise them? So then we're getting into that <laughs> athlete thing here. How do you exercise a shark? That's that's another conversation as well. Yes. Very carefully. I would love Very to Very carefully. <laughs> Keep your hands away from the bitey end. Um, <laughs> so we exercise them. We, we're essentially monitoring or measuring their VO2 max that we track as humans. We call it their MO2 max. But this is the maximum amount of oxygen they can take up into their body when they are maximally exercised, maximally active. And again, we found no difference. Wow. <laughs> Wait a second here. So... Resting, doing absolutely nothing, no difference between current day conditions and end of century ocean acidification conditions. That means they don't need any more energy to be alive. They're just, they're good to go regardless. Same if they're maximally exercising. The difference between those two metrics, so those would be proxies for sort of like a standard metabolic rate and a maximum metabolic rate. The difference between those two estimates, we call it their aerobic scope. Mm -hmm. And it's just a simple math. So you take the maximum metabolic rate and you subtract the standard metabolic rate and you get this number. And that tells us the total amount of oxygen they have for everything they would need to do as a shark. Swim, uh, chase prey item, evade a predator, find a mate, just hang out, digest a meal, you know, anything that involves energy, this number tells us there is still no difference. So we had these three metabolic metrics where there was no difference between current day conditions and end of century conditions. And so we had to zoom in a little bit deeper mm. and, and, and kind of look at things with a little bit of a, a, a closer, closer look, a little bit more of a, a magnifying glass, so to speak. Mm. And that's why we started looking at blood. So we could take blood from these sharks very easily. You wouldn't think you could, but we turned them over. We put them into tonic immobility. So a lot of people know that 
when you turn a shark belly side up in the water, they kind of go to sleep. Um, it puts them in a really calm state. Scientists we still don't completely understand this whole process, but it's great for stuff like this <laughs> because they get very calm when you're about to poke a needle into them. A lot of humans don't like it when you take blood from them. And nope. yeah, some sharks don't love it either, but they are completely calm. It's a perfect scenario for that. We're able to take a blood sample, one or two milliliters is all we ever need, really, even less than that, to be honest. And we can monitor all kinds of things. So you mentioned earlier their hematocrits, HCT mm-hmm. is the abbreviation, and that's actually the ratio of red blood cells to total blood volume. So we know that the red blood cells are really important in housing this key protein called hemoglobin. And hemoglobin is the protein that we have that pretty much all oxygen-dependent life on the planet has in order to transport oxygen throughout its body. So when we breathe in air um, into our lungs, all the blood that's circulating throughout our lungs, the hemoglobin inside that blood, inside those red blood cells, will grab onto that oxygen, hold onto it tightly. That blood moves to our muscles and our liver and our heart and all the other tissues in our body. And when it gets to those tissues, there's a reaction that we understand really, really well. It basically exchange, exchanges that oxygen, delivers that oxygen to those tissues in exchange for carbon dioxide. And that's what we exhale, right? Well, it's the same in sharks. So understanding what's going on with the ratio of those red blood cells to total blood volume can tell us a lot about how they're coping with a metabolic challenge, an oxygen-dependent challenge. And we did find an interesting change there in that the hematocrit, so the ratio of red blood cells to total blood volume, increased in the animals that were exposed to end-of-century ocean acidification conditions. Now, it could mean that there are more red blood cells in circulation. So maybe the spleen of the shark contracted and released stored red blood cells into circulation to help that shark cope with this challenge in a way that made us not even notice it when we were measuring all those other metabolic traits, but this is where it happened. Or it could be that those red blood cells are not becoming more numerous, but they're becoming larger. So Mm -hmm. red blood cell swelling is another situation we don't completely understand in sharks. Understand really well in bony fishes and teleos fishes part of the stress response. We don't know if it's really the same in sharks. So we're working on that. So one of two um, explanations could tell us uh, about why we saw that increase in hematocrit in sharks exposed to end-of-century ocean acidification conditions. Now, hemoglobin, we also measured. We're able to measure the concentration of hemoglobin in these blood samples, and we do that the same way they would do that with your blood sample, if you're donating blood at the Red Cross or at the hospital or uh, you know, getting your blood done, we can monitor the concentration of hemoglobin in your blood. Now, super amazing athletes have a very high concentration of hemoglobin in their blood, meaning that their blood's going to be able to transport lots of oxygen throughout their body, deliver it to those tissues that need it so that they can keep being amazing athletes. So an increase in hemoglobin concentration would be a really good thing if they were becoming more athletic under these 
end of century conditions. Well, we didn't see any change. So maybe that's not it. Um, <laughs> we can also look at how much hemoglobin is in each cell. We didn't really see any changes there. So that kind of leads us to think that you know, maybe um, that they are increasing the number of red blood cells in circulation or their red blood cells are swelling and that that's maybe part of the stress response. Mm. So this prolonged exposure over 72 hours to these high CO2 conditions is having a tiny little stress response that they were correcting pretty well so that we couldn't really see it in any other trait. Um, we also looked at some of the other blood parameters like blood pH, which under ocean acidification conditions, if they're not correcting things properly, you would expect blood pH to decrease, and it didn't. So they are making changes to correct for that acidosis that they would experience under these ocean acidification conditions to the point where we're not noticing any problems. Uh, lactate was elevated could tell us a little bit about the stress response as well. Could tell us a little bit about a metabolic stress that they might be experiencing. But again, they're doing these fine scale adjustments to the point where on a, a whole organism level at these bigger metabolic traits that we're measuring, like their breathing rates, we're not seeing any problems. So they're making these adjustments pretty well and we're starting to un uncover the exact mechanisms they might be using to do so. Wow, that's incredibly fascinating that they are managing to make these minor adjustments to, you know, almost just crack on as usual. Um, but what do you think the implications would be for, you know, prolonged exposure? Because this was 72 hours, right, of, of um, exposure to these conditions. Do you think that even though you know, th these, um, they seem to be adjusting very, very well to these new conditions. Do you think that if it was for a more prolonged period of time, we would see the sharks begin to suffer fitness wise? Or um, is this an area that we need to perhaps do more research in? Well, I think it does have a species by species basis, for sure. We have just a few other shark species that we've been able to look at over the years. So we don't have a lot to go by at this point. And mm. a lot of that's restricted logistically. So we're, we are able to work with these smaller sharks, some of the carpet sharks, some of the benthic sharks that are easy to work with in the laboratory. But we don't have all 1,147 shark and ray species <laughs> to, to investigate at this point. So, yeah. you know, we have to be pretty strategic with this. What we do know from the epaulette shark work is that prolonged exposure doesn't seem to have any effect on them in terms of any of these metabolic traits. And in the same sense, they're not largely affected. They might be making some fine scale adjustments to make yeah. sure that they're not affected on the whole organism level. And that's, that's what we want. We want them to be able to compensate very well for this. And it seems to be that they're doing that. Um, and not only as adults for the epaulette sharks, we have done prolonged experiments with them, looking at some of these physiological traits, some of these behavioral traits. It's not affecting their capacity to, to hide and shelter, which we know is the thing that epaulette sharks do. It's not affecting their capacity to look for food or come out of their hiding spots and look for food. So any of those traits that are key to their ecology to, 
to their survival in the wild. They're not affected by these ocean acidification conditions even after prolonged exposure, so even after months exposure. And we can even rewind to the early life stages, looking at the eggs, the embryos developing those eggs, and we're not seeing any differences. So in terms of ocean acidification, at least, it doesn't seem to be a challenge for some of these sharks mm -hmm. that are experiencing challenging conditions in their habitat already, either at all life stages, such as the epaulette shark, or at least in these early life stages, such as the black reef shark as newborns. I love this because I think quite often research into these kind of human caused stresses results in us finding out that, you know, you know, that these these creatures are being adversely impacted. And it's normally always a bit of a doom and gloom message. But this is actually fantastic news and just goes to show mm. that the responses of species vary considerably and that we can't just use a blanket kind of um yeah uh response to kind of uh i guess define how all creatures in the ocean are going to to respond to this human caused stressor but honestly brilliant paper it was so fascinating to read and i would i would highly recommend that you know people go and, and read it and we're coming to the end now of the podcast it's honestly been so wonderful to speak <laughs> to you but i think that um, what would be a wonderful way to end this and what we kind of ask all of our guests to do is to kind of leave us with, I guess, a bit of wit and wisdom, a bit of inspiration. And, you know, you've come so far in your career and you are now, you know, the um, Associate Professor and Principal Research Fellow at the Australian Research Council Centre of Ex Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University. I mean, it's incredible. You've done so well in your career. So I wonder if you could leave our audience with, I guess, some final inspiring words about how, you know, other young women might be able to aspire to have had such an, an amazing career as yours. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a great way to end. A big part of what I try to do as a, a young female in the STEM fields is to be inclusive, to advocate for diversity and equity and lead by example. And I think that if I can do it, anyone can do it. I had this vision of coming together with this research program and tackling an idea that hadn't been tackled yet and you know, doing my little part to sort of save the world, as I used to say when I was a little girl. And I feel like I am doing that in a, in a tiny little way, and not only in the science that I do, but in the way that I can maybe inspire the next generation of scientists to, to help us save the planet and to help us protect what we love and the ecosystems and habitats and and species and organisms that we we've grown up loving over over our lifetimes so i guess that's that's how i would end it is um thinking uh, in a very optimistic kind of way that you know, we've got the collective intelligence on this planet uh, amongst ourselves amongst us scientists amongst those of us that are communicating and and doing science and we can we can do so much to quote save the planet <laughs> I absolutely love that Jodie um, and it has been 
brilliant to have you on today and you've been such a personal inspiration to me for a really long time now so um it was it was absolutely lovely for me to have the chat to uh, the chat the chance to chat with you today um so yeah thank you thank you so much for coming on um and if anyone would like to find out more about you or about physio shark project where can they where can they go now that's great thank you so much we are all over social media. We've got um, uh, an Instagram account, we've got Facebook. So if you just look up physio shark, so physiology and shark combined, you can find us. We've had some amazing photographers that have been working with us over the years. So our content tends to be quite beautiful because of these talented photographers that have given their time to work with us. So that's always a draw. And we've got some great stories about the research we've been doing that we that we keep posting about on social media as well Um, and yeah just google us you can find us love it brilliant thank you so much for coming on you're welcome you have been listening to the women in ocean science podcast if you would like to learn more head over to our website womeninoceanscience.com slash podcast or find us on socials at at women in ocean science You can find out more about Dr. Rummer's research and her lab at www.jodyrummer.com and www.physioshark.org. On Instagram, it's at RummerLab and at PhysioShark. On Facebook, it's PhysioShark Project. And on Twitter, PhysiologyFish, where she communicates scientific findings, highlights fellow scientists' successes, stories and achievements, and advocates for issues related to women in science, gender equality, and of course, diversity in STEM. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you all next Monday.